We're returning to Luke. Um, this is our second sermon of the new year in Luke. I'm picking up back in Luke 9, 46 through 62. And our text this morning um, begins Jesus' long journey to Jerusalem in Luke's gospel, which will last until chapter 19. And what we'll see in the next nine chapters is Jesus constantly on the move. Jesus is constantly on the move between chapters 9 and 19. We're continuing in the book of Luke. And what what we're going to see is what following Jesus is all about. So as we see Jesus on the move to Jerusalem in the next 10 or so chapters, we'll find out what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so this morning we're talking about the nature of discipleship. Because to follow Jesus means being a disciple. And so this morning as we read through these verses of scripture, I want you to be be on the lookout for the ways that Jesus teaches us that true discipleship requires humility and cooperation and grace and um, commitment. um, But instead, the, the disciples in this passage jockey for position. They try and monopolize the works of God and are vindictive towards people who don't respond positively um, and at times are tempted to give a half-hearted effort. So let's read through Luke 9, 46 through 62, and it'll be on the screen behind me. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child And put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, follow me. But he responded, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you. Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Father, now we thank you for this word and pray, O God, for the unction of your Holy Spirit and the illumination of your power and presence, Lord God, to connect us now to this message and this word. Your word is truth, and we pray that you sanctify us in it, that we might be transformed and leave differently than the way we came in today. Focus our hearts and minds on your word and the truths in it, and let us leave changed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Well, there's a great scene from the movie Gladiator, where Marcus Aurelius is at the end of a long military campaign, and he is going to be passing on his powers as emperor. And he has a private meeting with his son, Commodus, who's played by Joaquin Phoenix, if you've seen the movie. And he tells his son that he will not become emperor. And Commodus, with a heartbroken, uh, with heartbroken and with a quivering lip, says, Father, you once sent me a list of the four virtues, wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And when I saw your list, I realized that I had none of them. But I have other virtues, Father. I have ambition. And there are also virtues that mark out the character of a disciple, and spoiler alert, ambition is not on that list. The problem is, ambition isn't a virtue. Ambition drives men to build personal empires at the cost of others. Ambition is self-serving, motivated by self-importance. And ambition is an impediment to discipleship. And as we'll see this morning in the message, it can plague our ideas of what it means to follow Jesus. And so the first point is I want us to see is that being great in the kingdom means identifying with the lowly. We're talking about God's own virtues for a disciple. Being great in the kingdom means identifying with the lonely. Excuse me, the lowly and the lonely. Well, after witnessing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration talking with two of the most important figures of the Old Testament, Elijah and Moses, the disciples now, thinking about those two great prophets, are having a discussion, an argument amongst themselves about which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, you have to understand in the world of the first century of the Roman Empire, social relationships and status was everything. And what Jesus does next is he turns the whole paradigm on its head. He takes a child, possibly the child, in the previous verses that we covered last week that Jesus has healed when he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember the story that a man cries out from the crowd complaining that Jesus' disciples were not able to heal his son. And so Jesus heals a boy. This is possibly the same child. And he takes this child and he puts him at his side in a position of honor And says, whoever welcomes this child as an equal welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. So then treat the one who is least among you as they're the greatest. And if you and I today hear this, we say, no problem. I love kids. But in the first century world, children had the status, same status as slaves. As a matter of fact, it didn't matter even if they belonged to a wealthy and powerful home. Children had no real status until they came of age. They were at the bottom of the social ladder. Maybe the modern equivalent today would be a bag lady. There's probably a more politically correct term to describe a woman who lives out of a shopping cart, but I don't know how else to say it, so forgive me. But the modern equivalent may be like a bag lady who's filthy and dirty and lives out of a shopping cart with bags And maybe the modern equivalent for us would be, it would be like someone saying, invite this woman over to your house every week and honor her. 
It'd be a hard thing for us to do, especially if we live in a nice neighborhood and we care what our neighbors think about us. This is essentially what Jesus is saying. This woman right here is so important, I want you to treat her like she's the greatest. Now, countless myths and stories and histories really have touched on this idea of not not, uh, um, showing cruelty to someone who is of low status. You can think of the myths and the stories and even fairy tales of a a king who's dressed up like a beggar going to a village, maybe uh, um, going to a village and knocking on the door, asking for food and shelter, and being turned away at every turn, and then only come to find out it was actually a king or a prince. In fact, that's kind of what the story of Beauty and the Beast is about. Uh, This prince, this great wealthy prince, an old lady comes to the door and um, asks for shelter, and he turns her away, and she curses him with bestial uh, um, characteristics. And the moral of that story is that indifference towards the lowly makes us beasts because that's not how humans are supposed to treat one another. We're supposed to embrace the lowly. Being great in the kingdom means identifying with the lowly. And Jesus says, so then treat the one who is least among you as if they're the greatest. John Nolan in his commentary on Luke says this, and this is important. I want you to listen to this. He says, the high status that came to the disciples during Jesus' lifetime from their association with him is now to be found paradoxically in the company of the lowly. So here's the disciples just a, a few verses Earlier, God himself spoke out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son, my chosen, listen and obey him. And they felt honored. And now Jesus is saying, care for and treat with respect the lowest of the low. It's easy to serve people we identify with, people of our own race or ethnicity or socioeconomic situation, but it's not so easy to serve and embrace people on the margins of society. But true discipleship depends on it. Secondly, to follow Jesus, we have to realize that letting go of self-importance means rejoicing in others. Letting go of self-importance means rejoicing in others. Apparently, someone else, in the next set of verses, someone else is casting out Jesus, excuse me, casting out demons in Jesus' name. And the rub here is just a few verses earlier, the disciples themselves were having trouble casting a demon out of a boy, and they hear that there's some rogue exorcist, a man going around casting out devils in Jesus' name who does not follow along with their group. And that makes it painful for the disciples. But what are the disciples really upset about? They're still preoccupied with their own sense of greatness. The disciples want to monopolize the works of God. They're not happy to give credit to someone else doing great things in Jesus' name. They want exclusive claim over the powers of the kingdom. They want exclusive claim over the powers of the kingdom of God. And I can totally be that way. When I hear that someone maybe who once attended our church is going to a, a church with you know, kind of fuzzy theology, you know, I kind of get upset about it, and I'm like, hey, that church, that church has rotten theology. What are you going there for? You need to come back to my church, or you need to come to my church. 
But we do well to remember, you may remember in Numbers chapter 11, some of the Israelites came to Moses and they told Moses, we found out that other people were prophesying who don't follow along with us and, you know, what should we do? And Moses said, I wish that all God's people were prophets. And so disciples then are marked not only by humility, but a magnanimous spirit not a spirit of self-importance. A true disciple is not marked by a sense of self-importance, but graciousness and generosity of spirit to others, and is also able to rejoice in God's works in the lives of others, even when you take no credit for it. And then thirdly, because rejection will be frequent, vindictiveness has no place. And I'm just going to read these next verses. It says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who entered her village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people didn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when the disciples heard it, they remembered Elijah the prophet on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and they said, I can see them maybe excited. Should we call down fire from heaven? You know, in their mind, they're thinking, you know, it's going to get good right now. You know, and Jesus probably looked at them with this stern look of disgust. said, are you crazy? Maybe he didn't say that, but that's the way I see Jesus saying it. He rebuked them sternly. He rebukes them for it. Now, what's happening here? Well, the Samaritans, as you know, are, trace their heritage all the way back to the split of the kingdom of Israel when uh, a group of Israelites wanted to worship and sacrifice on Mount Gerizim. So the Samaritans may have been really happy about this prophet, but when they hear that Jesus is headed towards not Mount Gerizim in the north, where the Samaritans worship and offer sacrifice, but to Jerusalem, they're offended, and they won't let Jesus stay in their town. And Jesus says, take it easy, fellas. Don't worry about it. And why the rebuke? Because the Son of Man came not to destroy lives, but to save them. They've got it all wrong. Jesus came to save lives, to give life more abundantly, not to destroy people, not to call down fire from heaven. Enemies, though they may be, that's not what Jesus came for. I remember many, many years ago, I shared with the congregation here many times that I grew up in a Pentecostal tradition, very extreme Pentecostal tradition, and we believed the power of God was, you know, at our fingertips, like, you know, we could shoot it out almost like lightning. And I remember a friend of mine, um, someone had come into the church, and often, I don't know why, but churches like those, the one I was in, seemed to attract people who do crazy things, and someone came in off the street, and they started saying crazy things, disrupting the service, and a friend of mine you know, he was in the other corner of the church, and he yelled out, you know, Satan, the Lord God, rebuke you. And he, he looked back years later, uh, reflecting on it, and he said, you know, I thought that person, when I rebuked them in the power of the Spirit, were, you know, was going to do one of these, you know, like the Darth Vader move, you know? Like, the, like God was going to judge them right there and, you know, stop them from talking, because they were disrupting the service. Um, and it's funny how sometimes we can feel that any act of, uh, disrespect towards the church is warrants immediate judgment from us, from us, but that's really not our place. We're called to patiently recognize that vengeance belongs to God. Jesus rebukes the excuse me, the disciples for wanting to call down fire 
on the Samaritans for rejecting Jesus. But there's a greater reason here. It's not just we should be nice to people who don't like us. It's that the disciples were about to experience a lot of rejection. Discipleship means, often especially when we take our message to the world, that people will reject us. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you also. In fact, Josh next week is going to be talking about this in his sermon that we need to learn to lean into rejection. Our message isn't always rejected, but the disciples and us have to get used to rejection because not everybody will respond to the message of the gospel. Listen, Jesus was going to Jerusalem to suffer, not to make people suffer. And then finally, Jesus does not give us the option of easy discipleship. He does not give us the option of easy discipleship. In parentheses, I have in my notes, it's going to take all of you. It's going to take everything you've got. As they're going along, Jesus runs into different people. One says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, not so fast. You need to know, you know, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Another person says, Jesus says to another person, follow me. And the one says, let me go bury my father. Jesus says something that may perplex us. Let the dead bury their dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There's a sense of urgency. In Jesus' earthly ministry on the way to Jerusalem, there was no time to set your affairs in order. The gospel had to be proclaimed. The message had to be proclaimed, and there was no time to linger because he was headed to the cross. And then finally, someone else yelled out, I will follow, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those who are at home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so on the surface we have in the end of this whole section a few statements which seem completely out of character for Christians and the Bible and totally bizarre. Don't bury your father which seems incredibly dishonorable and no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom, which we think, what does that mean? Because we don't live in an agrarian culture. Well, one is the sense of urgency and that I just mentioned, that a follower of Jesus, if they were going to follow him in his earthly ministry on the way to Jerusalem, they weren't going to be staying in four-star hotel accommodations. Jesus was recognizing that nature almost seemed to accommodate the animals of the earth better than he was accommodated. In fact, I can imagine Jesus probably spending many a frigid night cozying up next to a campfire outdoors because he had set his face toward Jerusalem. He was on the journey to Jerusalem. I'm a backpacker. I love being in the outdoors, and I love the challenge of getting up there in the high mountains on a trail and making my own campsite. I like going to the deep backcountry, making my own campsite, but I've got a warm sleeping bag and a sleeping pad and an expensive tent and fleece bottom layers and all those things, but Jesus has no such luxury. And so he's telling people who think it's going to be easy, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man had no place and has no place to rest his head. So there's one, one, one issue here is the sense of urgency that we may not exactly experience because we're not with Jesus in that time headed to the cross. But secondly, it's that discipleship 
is not for those who are not all in. You ever heard someone say that before? You say, you know, um, this is our plans this weekend. You know, do you want to go with us? And someone says, I'm all in. Whatever you do, I'll go with you. I'll do it with you. Discipleship is not for those who are not all in. And this imagery that Jesus takes is from agrarian life. I had to look it up because I had no clue what he was talking about. I've been to seminary and I didn't, we didn't talk about that. Um, this particular uh, metaphor, this image that Jesus, is, Jesus uses. And so the, the image comes from agrarian life where um, you plow a field in a straight line. And so if you're plowing the field and you want to keep a straight line, you have to stay focused. But at some point, you might be tempted to look back to see if the line was straight. And even if it is, when you go back to plowing, you're probably now going to be off kilter a little bit just from looking back. And Jesus says, he uses it as a metaphor for following him to say, once you start following me, there's no going back. This is not an easy road. And you know, the world, often you hear people say, well, Christianity is a crutch. You believe in Jesus because you can't handle the pressures of the world. As if to say Christianity makes life easy. Like we're soft and we can't handle living in the world. But that's not the image we get from Jesus. We don't get the image from Jesus that being a disciple and following him is easy. He says, on the contrary, it's going to be hard. And it's going to take all of you. It's going to take everything you've got. And if you're not willing to make that commitment, don't even try it. Now, that's not exactly how we disciple people. Maybe we should. Maybe one of the reasons that there's such a great falling away, it seems, in our nation is what we've told people discipleship is, what we've told people following Jesus is all about, is some easy road. And Jesus says, this is a tough road. And you've got to be all in. And sometimes things will get really hard. The cause of Christ can be unpopular. And whoever doesn't count the cost is in for a rude awakening. I would submit to you that Christianity that comes without a cost is a Christianity and a faith that isn't valued and is usually thrown aside for something else. We value the things that we have paid dearly for. We value the things that cost us dearly. We hold on and want to hold and, and keep the things close to us that we came by not easily but through hardship. I've given the story in the past about this hiking stick I made when I got into hiking. I went into the woods and found a near straight stick, which is really hard to find in the wilderness. But I found this near straight stick and I cut off the little branches and I sanded it down and I made it real pretty and I filled in the cracks in the wood with wood putty and then I stained it with walnut. And I drilled into the top and I put a little Boy Scout geological survey medallion on there. And I drilled a little hole for a lashing. And in the bottom, I screwed in, you know, uh, a, a big nut, you know, that, um, to, to brace the impact of it. And then I put marine varnish over it so that it would be waterproof. I love that stick. If you can't tell, I love that stick. I made that stick. 
And if the house was burning down, there's a few things I'd grab. That'd be on the list. Because it took me time. I had to learn. It took me hardship. There was a learning curve. It was, it was hard doing all that work. I had to read up on it. A faith that costs nothing is worth nothing. And real discipleship challenges us in the deepest places of our hearts. What's stopping you this morning from really being a follower of Jesus? Is it the inability to identify with the lowly? Or a sense of self-importance, resentment of others, and inability to rejoice when God moves in their lives? A vindictive attitude that wants vengeance every time someone mistreats you? Is that what's stopping you from following after Jesus? Or have you not really counted the cost of an apprenticeship with Jesus? Because that's what discipleship is. Are you too afraid to lose and suffer loss? May God grant us, like Paul, the conviction, I consider all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.